Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Take it, shoot that, shoot that. How are we going in the middle? Welcome to City Game, your Brooklyn Nets podcast on WFAN and radio.com. Here's your host, Steve Lichtenstein. And hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the City Game Podcast, the show for Brooklyn Nets fans. I'm Steve Lichtenstein of WFAN.com, and folks, the Nets won two playoff basketball games against the Boston Celtics this week, so needless to say, I'm in a very good mood. That could change by the weekend, of course, with the series moving to Boston for the next two games. For now, though... We can all bask in the knowledge that Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden all played for this basketball team. Now, the first two steps on the road to 16 wins couldn't have been more different. Game one was a defensive brick fest, with Brooklyn pulling away just enough in the second half to come away with a 104-93 victory on Saturday night. Tuesday night, though? The scary hours returned. Brooklyn came out guns a-blazing, especially Joe Harris, who had 22 points in the first half, including a team-record six threes. The Nets really were magnificent on both ends for two-plus quarters until it got really out of hand. And then they kind of cruised to a 130-108 victory to take a 2-0 lead in the best-of-seven first-round series. In this show... I'll break it all down for you, and to help me with that, I'll be bringing back yet another City Game Podcast favorite, the terrific young Nets beat writer for The Athletic, Alex Schiffer, will be joining me on a Zoom call soon, so hope you all enjoy it. As always, I ask that you please subscribe to this podcast on Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you're downloading these episodes, and if you're on Apple Podcasts, Appreciate a kind word or two in the comments section if you can. So before I get into the games themselves, I first got to say how fantastic it was to see the raucous crowds back inside Barclays Center, especially that first game on Saturday night. Just so much pent-up energy from more than a year of dealing with this awful pandemic. It was really a party-like atmosphere. Fans arrived unfashionably early, going 
going nuts when Kevin Durant took the court for his pregame warm-up routine. And really, they were loud all night, you know, providing that home court energy advantage that had been absent from really all sports. So, of course, you know, Saturday night the Nets came out and couldn't shoot a lick, missing 12 of their 13 three-pointers in the first half. In fairness, I mean, both teams really struggled to score most of the night, just like we all expected, right? Nets were really fortunate to be only down six at the break, so it didn't take much of a run to turn the tables on a Celtic squad that looks like a shell of itself without injured all-star Jalen Brown. And Jason Tatum had a miserable second half, going 0 for 6 from the floor. Kemba Walker and Evan Fournier weren't much better, but really, you know, there was no way the Celtics were going to be able to muster enough offense with Tatum stifled like that. So how'd the Nets do it? I asked Nets star James Harden about that, and here's the clip. Hey, James, uh, can you describe what uh, Kevin or Jeff was doing to make things so difficult for Tatum and having to deal with all his fakes? Uh, yeah, we all know how, you know, great of a scorer JT is. And um, just try to, you know, knock him off his, his, his spots a little bit, you know, um, you know, be physical with him, contest his shots, and just show bodies. You know, I think he uh, he gets he likes the ball to dance on the wings and and in that and that's um, that post game he's he's pretty efficient. So we wanted to show him bodies, contested shots, and uh, once the shot goes up, gang rebound. And I think everybody that you know had a crack at him did a solid job. Um, six for twenty, you know, but we can't be comfortable with that. You know, he he's he's gonna be uh, be better game too, and uh, we will too. So uh, good for James Harden there for correcting me in a poorly researched question as it really took nearly every body the Nets had to hold Tatum down. Yes, KD had the initial assignment, and sometimes Jeff Green did, but the Nets switched so routinely that Tatum had opportunities to isolate against virtually any defender he wanted. And according to NBA.com's tracking, it actually took eight different bodies. That's right, eight different Nets were at one point the nearest defender when Tatum hoisted his 20 field goal attempts. In fact, Tatum took most of his shots when guarded by Kyrie Irving and Bruce Brown, four apiece. Versus those two, Tatum made one bucket total with two free throws. And out of all of his 20, all but four shots were contested. Now, you know, it wasn't just the Celtics who got bogged down by what I called big game hunting in game one. You know, big game because it's the playoffs. Never mind. Anyway, both teams were in the business of hunting for switches to get mismatches. But instead of using them to coax help and facilitate offense for others, too often they went one-on-one into loaded defenses and put up difficult shots. Of course, you know, the Nets were always going to be a heavy isolation team. You know, it three of the best one-on-one players of all time. It's so tempting to never believe there's such a thing as a bad shot. In the regular season, only Portland went to isolations more than Brooklyn's 10% of possessions, or about 11 per game, according to NBA.com. And among individual players with at least 100 such possessions, KD, Kyrie, and Harden ranked 2nd, 5th, and ninth, respectively, in points per possession on isolations. So, yeah, they're very good at it. In Game 1, though, the Nets' play type was so skewed 
40 isolation possessions. 40. That's some imbalance. Fortunately, you know, the Nets got their act together in the middle of the fourth quarter. In a little more than a minute, they went on a 7-0 run to go up by double digits and never were really in danger again. Kyrie had 13 points in the quarter, including a few of those backbreakers where you think you're playing good defense on him and he still makes the shot anyway. But like I said before, that win was due more to the defense. And though it seemed like Tristan Thompson and Robert Williams were everywhere on the offensive glass, that's actually secured more offensive rebounds than Boston did. So check that box off the to-do list. I asked Nets versatile forward Jeff Green about that before the series began, and here's the clip. Hey, Jeff, uh, when you're doing your preparation for the Celtics, uh, how high on the list of things to clean up, how high on the list was defensive rebounding, and what were your takeaways from the film that you reviewed in that area? Uh, I believe that was pretty high. Uh, you know, given the personnel that they have, you know, they have, you know, Tristan, who's a, who's a monster on the boards. Um, that's, that's what he's known for. Um, you know, he's a big focal point, but it's, I mean, it's more than that. Uh, it's a lot of things that we are trying to focus on, uh, but that's, that's one of the things that's on that list. So um, I think that's a big, um, th- a big thing we got to keep our eye on to make sure that we all are game rebounding and uh, you know, being as one on the boards. So the Nets put it all together on Tuesday night. Offense, defense, rebounding, and yes, even coaching. It was an absolute demolition from midway through the first quarter. They totally abused Fournier. I tweeted that that guy had to score like 40 points to overcome all the damage he does to the Celtics defensively. That same NBA tracking that I used to give you the Tatum stats on offense. Well, you know, in the first two games, when Fournier has been the closest defender, the Nets have gone 17 for 25. Or 68% from the floor. Six of eight of those from three-point distance. Oh, and you know, he's committed five shooting fouls for ten additional free throws in 11 attempts. I mean, he's been the gift that keeps on giving. So, let's not bring in the Athletics' Alex Schiffer to talk more about Game 2 and other interesting stuff he worked on recently. So, here's my interview with Alex. Folks, You've heard me talking for years about the sports subscription service, The Athletic. Of course, they're loaded with so many talented writers like my special guest this week, the beat writer for the Brooklyn Nets, Mr. Alex Schiffer, is back with me on the City Game Podcast. Alex, I've been a subscriber since like day one, so I wasn't eligible for that dollar a week promotion you just ran and made me look like a sucker for paying the full fare. But maybe I can continue it with my New York Times subscription next year, right? Yeah, well, we'll see where that goes. Uh, you're not the first person to uh, bring up to me that they uh, they missed out on the one dollar promotion after subscribing. So uh, that's above my pay grade, but I appreciate the business regardless. Well, thanks for coming on with me. Uh, we're, we were both at Barclay Center for the first two games. You know, it's been a while since the building was that full. And I remember talking to you earlier in the year about what would happen come playoff time if fans were allowed back. But but then it was like wondering if some cities weren't ready. Now that it seems like everyone is opening up, you know, do you think the home court advantage is back? As in, you know, even though the Nets have looked like the far superior team in the first two games, you know, will the games in Boston 
proved to be more difficult for Brooklyn to get than even the regular season? Are we back to where home court advantage is a real thing? Yeah, you know, I, I thought actually you you said it pretty well on Twitter last night where even though the attendance wasn't what it was on Saturday, the place didn't look as packed, but it, it still was pretty full. I, I thought the energy was still really there, especially in the first quarter when Joe Harris had that hot streak. It seemed like the court was living in the, the crowd was living and dying uh, by every time he touched the ball. So I, I definitely think that it's starting to come back. I, I think that this weekend is going to be a really good measuring stick because, I mean, and, and we'll probably get to this anyway, but I mean, Kyrie Irving's obviously due for a heck of a homecoming from the Boston sports fans. And uh, I, I almost feel like with the way the Celtics looked last night, that that might be their best asset going into game three is, is can this crowd rattle the nets at all, given, given that they're probably going to get a uh, Hall of Fame caliber heckling, for, for lack of a better phrase. <laughs> well, I, I read your report, obviously, from game two last night in The Athletic. And, you know, as usual, you hit all the notes. Uh, but, I, you know, I, the one thing I want to draw down on, the one thing you mentioned, that I think in general has been underemphasized, you know, is the change in the Nets' pace. And it, it goes beyond the numbers, like six fast break points in game one versus 20 last night, or the simple number of possessions, uh, at like 93 in game one. You know, and they re- then they bumped it up to their regular season average of 101 last night. And it wasn't just defense turning into offense. You know, they had plenty of stops, if you recall, in game one. But they didn't push the pace like they did last night. You know, the the so-called fast break numbers, they don't include all the times the Celtics got cross-matched in transition so that someone like Evan Fournier got stuck guarding Kevin Durant before any actions or switching occurred. You know, what do you think that change, you know, means going forward for Brooklyn? You know, I, I agree, actually, with what you said about the fast break numbers. Like, I, I thought though those numbers and, and even, I mean, the the assist numbers were really good, but it, it didn't really speak fully to the ball movement they had where I, I thought they were really swinging it and making the extra pass. I, I agree. I thought game one, you know, even though the Nets won, they kind of played more to the Celtics terms of trying to grind it out and, and play more in the half court. Whereas you said, you know, game two, they, they really played full court and, and emphasized getting the ball out quick. And as you said, I, I thought it really showed. I mean, Evan Fournier got caught up in some mismatches, and and I also thought it kind of transcended the defensive end, where as you said, they were getting stops, and you know they, they had I, I lost count of it, but I mean they, they had a good number of shot clock violations, and even when the Nets' defense was good in the regular season, you didn't really see them having possessions like that frequently. Um, that that was never really their bread and butter. So I I thought that the, the tempo was huge, and I, I thought that you know Harden. Game one, I guess everyone he talked about, you know, even the crowd kind of surprising him a bit, but I thought that he did a really good job of taking a back seat to Joe and Durant and some of those guys and understanding that he needed to push the tempo, but also not necessarily try and score off of that. And and he still had his 20. So I, I thought as you I thought the tempo really opened up the Nets offense and, and that allowed them also to get Joe Harris some of those threes when when the Celtics defense wasn't even fully set. And I'm talking with Alex Schiffer of the Athletic, and you mentioned Harden, I thought you did a really marvelous job last week in that James Harden article, going back to his Arizona State days to delve into the evolution of the beard into a basketball Zen master. You know, for the folks who don't have the athletic, can you give them a few snippets from the article that you know made an impact on you? And you know, how long did it take to research? Yeah, so um, that story I would guess was probably two months in the making, if not maybe a little more. Um, you know, he obviously, I mean, he, he was an MVP candidate before he got hurt this year. And 
you know, he his ability to kind of figure out this Nets team on the fly, you know, without a lot of practice time in a condensed season, you know, fascinated me. And kind of going back to the origins of his basketball brain, I mean, you know, he, he's an avid pickup player. He he would go to the Arizona State rec and, and experiment on frat boys um, and and kind of test moves and, and concepts on them before applying them in a game or a practice. He'd go after games sometimes, and that kind of began the – the acceleration of his, his basketball mind. Um, it's funny, you know, I was trying to get a Arizona state frat guy for, uh, for that story. And then I heard from a bunch of them on Twitter, not, not appreciating the terms lab rats or Guinea pigs, but uh, <laughs> it's okay. I mean, it, it, it doesn't matter. So, um, you know, I, I thought that that really, really kind of spoke to how he's wired and, and, you know, it's funny. Um, I'm not really a big video game guy, but talking to a lot of his friends who play video games with him, they, they and I mentioned the story, but they talk about how he's he's just very similar uh, on the court and off the court, where he he really tries to let someone else make the first move and and then kind of punish them for their mistakes. And uh, and and I got a lot of good people from Houston talking about how, you know, I, I didn't get to put this in the story, but a lot of people think that his future after he's done playing is in the personnel department because he just done a really good job over the course of his career of knowing who he would play well alongside who he wouldn't and, uh, and what's going to work and what's not. And just him being this quick learner and how that's been key for the nets this year. And obviously going to be huge in the playoffs as this team kind of grow, you know, grows on the fly given the limited reps in the regular season. So I, I appreciate the shout out and I'm glad you liked it, but, uh, De- definitely, uh, definitely a fun one to, to write and, and look into as a lot of his friends were there cooperative and had no problem talking about, you know, as you said, how he became this puzzle master, peer, uh, Zen master, whatever you want to call it, of, of basketball. Yeah. And you couldn't even talk to Arden about it, right? <laughs> no, I, I looked through every single quote he's given us this season to try to find some way to get his voice in there. It was very hard. But uh, but yeah, hopefully maybe that changes something going forward with uh, the way it came out. You'd agree, though, that he's the one of the big three who's had to sacrifice the most. Absolutely. And I I even, you know, Jeff Green even said the same thing in that story. I mean, you know, Kyrie, you know, is a scoring point guard and him moving off the ball to give Harden the reins of the offense. I mean, essentially just made sure that would happen even more. And um, and. I think obviously Durant, I don't really think his role has changed that much with, with the addition of Harden and uh except maybe putting even more of an emphasis on the defensive end because some of those guys they lost in the trade, you know, Jared Allen, Karis LeVert were were probably better defenders and they got back in him. Obviously, he makes up for it in other ways. But, uh, but yeah, I, I definitely think that he's the one that's, you know, his his scoring has gone down, but he's he's at peace with that, it seems like, and understands what needs to be done for them to get a title here. Yeah, well, you mentioned Kyrie Irving. Uh I won't, I got to ask about him. You know, he's going to be heading back to his former stomping grounds in Boston. You know, it should be pretty interesting. Huh? Uh, but when he was going for that 50, 40, 90 mark uh, at the end of the season, you know, I saw you jotting down a bunch of numbers on a pad, like the guy in a beautiful mind. I, I didn't know what you were doing. So what did you come up with there to add more color into how remarkably efficient Kyrie has been this season? Yeah, so when you were talking to me, I was going through his NBA uh, stats page, stats page on NBA.com, looking at all of his shooting numbers um, through the first 10 years of his career, whether it was bank shots, um, you know, four to eight feet, you know, eight to 12, whatever the, the distance ranges were, and um, types of shots, all that to kind of see where he shot the highest percent. You know, I mean, he, 
he almost had a 50 40 90 season in one of his two seasons in boston i think i think it was his first season um and um and i mean he's always had really good you know i, th- I think that the tough part of a 50 40 90 season is that you could have a guy that shoots around those ranges all the time but but to get them to get, hit those numbers all in the same season, I think is the really hard part. So he, he's always been really good from three from the field and from the free throw line He's usually sat in the mid to high eighties, but to get him to go um, hit all three was, is obviously the hard part. So, I mean, it, it's funny just because the, the numbers I found were just that it, what he, to me is kind of known for as a scorer is where he had his best year, you know, in the mid range, he shot at his highest. I think he shot it was ninety two percent from the uh, on all of his bank shots. Obviously, you know you you've taken uh, some of the tweets like I have and uh, you know uh, tweeted about him being the first guy on the court. You always see him working on the glass and and throwing the ball off different angles to see how it goes in. So I, I thought that you know the what got him over the the um the hill for this this mark was a lot of the things he's known for. You know the mid range game. I mean his godfather's Rod Strickland, who, who you know has been a big proponent of the mid range jump shot as as the game goes to more layups and threes. You know, his, his finishing around the glass and down low was at his highest. So, you know, to me, that that was just kind of the interesting thing is that the the numbers have always been there. But he he really peaked in the stuff that you'd probably think he's at. He, he's best known for this season. Yeah, I, you did a great job in that article. I got to teach you how to use Excel, Alex. I mean, I know <laughs> that, that looks so labor intensive. <laughs> it uh, if I had a do over, I would have um, I would have done that. I uh. It's funny. You're the second person to tell me like, dude, I showed my, I texted my friend. He goes, dude, come on. You're, you're, you're a millennial. You should be on your computer doing this instead of old school. But I, I, uh, I agree. I agree. You know, Greg, you know, Greg Logan, I could see doing that, but yeah, yeah, that's uh, he, 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 he's definitely more, uh, more old school on that front than I, than I should be probably <laughs> just a couple of more for you for Alex, if you don't mind, uh, I have to ask you, you know, more about the Nets defense because, you know, they're performing at the second best efficiency in the league right now in terms of points allowed per hundred possessions in these playoffs, uh, tiny sample size, obviously, but no one expected this, you know, especially game one. Yeah. I mean, Jalen Brown would have made a big difference for Boston, but they still have guys like Jason Tatum who should be lighting up a Nets defense that wasn't all that good even at their best moments in the regular season. So, you know, let's get to try to nail it down. Like, what gives? Yeah, I mean, it's funny, though. I was looking at their numbers before game two last night just to kind of see what, what, who, I guess, who, who stood out defensively. And I mean, you know, Jeff Green actually came out as their best defensive, had the best defensive rating of any of the Nets in game one. And obviously he was lost at halftime in game two to that bruised left foot. And, and we didn't get to ask Steve after the game what the deal was there. I, I definitely think there's increased effort across the board. But I, I also think that, I mean, I think the job Kevin Durant's done on Jason Tatum has been terrific. You know, he he last night made life really hard for him. And, and I forget if it was you, I was talking to someone else at halftime, but you know, most, I think most of Tatum's baskets last night, he only had nine points, but it was when Durant was off him or off the court in general that he got those well, baskets. So well, one other thing you should know, uh, I did tweet this out after game one. I didn't look at the tracking last night. Uh, there were eight different guys who defended a Tatum shot in game one. I mean, the most attempts Tatum took in game one of his 20, Four were against Kyrie, four were against Bruce Brown, and he made just one. 
Wow. So, I mean, I think, I mean, I asked Jeff, I, I played this clip that I asked Jeff Green earlier about, or, or, or maybe it was James Harden. It was James Harden. I asked earlier about, you know, Kevin or Jeff's defense on him, but it was really their ability to throw so many bodies at him and give him different looks. And I think all, but like four were contested. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that that's a, the other thing is the buy-in for, you know, I think the star players have essentially said for most of the season, you know, it's about effort on defense and, and even kind of admitting somewhat that, that they need to be better on that front too. But, you know, I'm looking at the Nets defensive ratings for um, through two games right now. I mean, Jeff Green is still there, has the best defensive rating. Nick Claxton, which you'd expect, is is right behind him. And then, I mean, James Harden is at 96.8, which I wouldn't have expected. Joe Harris has been really good. And, I mean, I, I think Kyrie Irving's done a pretty good job, especially in game one. You know, I, I mean, I thought Kemba Walker's stats were kind of, even though he only had 15 points, they were kind of inflated because, you know, he had that stretch late in the game when it was ready out of uh, out of hand where he had those two threes, and I think he had one other basket there. So, you know, he, he was pretty much a non-factor in game one. And I, I think the efforts up across the board, and I also think, you know, I think they're making adjustments pretty well too in that, you know, game one, I mean, Jason Tatum picked on Blake Griffin a lot, I thought, with, with some of those switches in the first half. And then, as you said, you know, Green and some of those other guys in the second half kind of helped bottle them up. So I, I think that it's been it's been twofold in that, they're kind of learning pretty quickly or, or reacting quickly the right way. And all right, you know, this guy's not working here. Like, let's try to find a way to, to combat that. And and again, the effort across the board. I also thought, you know, I mean, Kevin Durant was obviously a rim protector in Golden State a bit. But I, I thought last night was probably his best game in that aspect as a net. I can't remember him having that many blocks or even just being that much of a factor defensively around the rim throughout the season obviously he missed about half the season but i and, and you've watched as many games as i have i can't remember him having a better game in that aspect uh prior to last night yeah it's it, i think you'll, a lot of what you said is effort and you know it's been great to see let's see what happens so let's assume for a moment the nets move on uh how do you see the east shaking out i mean do you view potential matchups against the bucks and then the sixers who is you know, more troublesome and why? Yeah, I, I, I would kind of go straight chalk right now. Um, if it were just based on what we've seen, I mean, I, I thought it, it's kind of a shame because I, I thought that Miami Milwaukee series would be really, really good. And game two, obviously was, was just in a game two made last night's game for the Nets look, look somewhat competitive actually, just based on how, how quickly that one got out of hand. So I, I, I think Milwaukee is a really interesting, um, really interesting matchup because, you know, I, I've said, I, I've written this a couple of times, kind of not, not like a whole story, but just in blurbs that I think historically the Nets and the Bucks are in very similar places. I mean, Bucks won a title in the seventies with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. The Nets did the same in the ABA with, with Julius Irving. Right. And then both leave for greener pastures uh, and win titles where uh, elsewhere. And then, you know, ever since, I mean, both organizations have kind of been up and down in terms of consistency and winning and uh, and just like the Bucks lucked into Giannis at the 15th pick and that becoming the greatest 15th pick ever, probably the Nets lucked into getting Durant and Irving. You know, both of them made these huge deals with their draft picks to get Harden and Drew Holiday, respectively. And um, I, I think, you know, Steve Nash has talked a lot about some of these teams running it back for multiple years. And I think he's meant the, meant the Bucks a lot when he's talked about that is just 
that's the test for the Nets, right? They they're learning on the fly. They don't have a lot of history together. The Bucks have all the history together, and and the stakes are very high for both teams. You look at those two games they played during the end of the regular season without Harden. I mean, they were still relatively close without um, without him in the game. I, I think the you know the Bucks did a good job of of kind of taking away Joe Harris in those games. That you know, I, the game he had last night. I think when he's hot, it really speaks to the state of the offense. So. I, I'm curious to see if how Harden's floor manipulation and, and kind of what I wrote about in that big story about you know his, his basketball mind if if he can kind of maybe give the Bucks some defensive fits and kind of figure out ways to to manipulate the floor even with their guards and 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 with Giannis and and Holiday you know you know Holiday did a really good job on Irving too in those two games if he's maybe the way to kind of unlock that series but I, I think that would be a really tight series and, and then looking ahead to Philly I mean. I think Steve Nash has taken a similar approach, it seems like, with Joel Embiid to Giannis, where, you know, if they're the reason we lose, so be it, um, and and kind of letting them do their thing and, and obviously gave Giannis all those open looks and, and kind of banking on the numbers of, you know, he's a 30% shooter from three for the year. He's only going to hit so many of those. I So I Philly, I think, is harder because, you know, I, Durant's been great given the Celtics personnel and and um you know in the next round it might be less of a, an issue too especially the way brook lopez can hit threes now but and beads just a guy i feel like they don't really have an answer for on the roster so i you know and philly's got tobias harris they have a lot of different ways to hit you kind of like the nets um so that that's a series i i kind of want to see how the nets look against milwaukee before predicting but i i definitely think that you know while this series i don't know about you i i think i'd be surprised if this series goes past five games if not four I feel like they're in for some long ones in these next two series where you're looking at six or seven games probably just based on on the matchups and, and the star power. So you're not going to give me a prediction? That's my final question. You know, I'm not going to talk to you on air for for a bit. I, I want to know, would you see the Nets in the NBA Finals? What does your crystal ball say? Right now, after the way they looked last night, I, I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't be uh, opposed to making that prediction. You know, I, I thought the... They've probably looked the best out of out of a lot of the main teams. You know, Milwaukee survived game one against Miami before that, you know, that absolute blowout that in game two. Um, you know, we'll see more of Bucks Wizards, I believe, tonight. And uh, that was, you know, that for a one eight matchup, I thought that was a relatively good game over the weekend. So I, I like their chances. You know, I, I think they could use some help maybe if Miami can rattle a few games off to you know, tire out the Bucks a bit and have you know be more well rested because I I mean, I think the Nets will get take care of business in four if not five. You know, I'm I'm really curious to see if the crowd in Boston can maybe rattle the Nets a bit this weekend because I mean I, that might be their best weapon right now with the way the Celtics looked last night and and even Brad Stevens seemed to be saying you know when Joe Harris is hitting threes, um, it, it makes real life even tougher for us on defense. So I I, I think. I, th- I like their chances to, to make the finals right now, but I, I think they obviously have a very tough road ahead of them. And and if they were to go out against Milwaukee or the Sixers, it wouldn't surprise me more based on, on those teams, less so than the Nets. Well, I like your point before about the Bucs, uh, you know, not having to face Harden. I think having that third star, so Holiday can only guard one of the two, Irving or Harden, you know, that puts a lot of pressure on a, like a Chris Middleton or a Dante DiVincenzo you know, to, you know, to man up, if you will. Uh, and I think, yeah. yeah, I think that'll be a very interesting series, but like I said, you make a lot of interesting points. 
Alex Schiffer of The Athletic. It's always great to talk to you. Folks, subscribe to The Athletic. I guarantee you'll find some of the best sports writing out there every day of the week. Alex, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Steve. Great job, as always, there by Alex Schiffer of The Athletic. Again, I say it every week, but I'm just so thankful to be able to talk to all these folks in the Nets media. I mean, these guys aren't just great at their jobs. They're great people. So thank you again, Alex. So moving on, it's not really a City Game podcast unless I get into something that didn't go quite so well. And this week's topic is the education of one Nicholas Claxton. Before the Boston series, I talked to Claxton's veteran teammate Blake Griffin about what he told him to expect. Hey, Blake, just to follow up on an earlier question, uh, what would you tell uh, Nick Claxton, if you haven't already, uh, about the differences between a regular season game and a playoff game? Uh, I actually told him today just, you know, physicality. Um, You know, he's a great defender, super talented already you know and 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 a good player already so um just having not played in these situations you know that was just my message to him we were going through something and i was like man like every single possession is going to be a little bit more physical especially down the stretch going to be a lot more physical um and the deeper you go more physical so um that's just my message to him but he's already in a good position so yeah griffin knows his stuff about this sort of thing now look, the kid has played just 47 basketball games in two seasons going into these playoffs due to injuries and COVID-19 issues. So I guess it wasn't exactly fair for me to expect him to turn into like this X-Factor like I did last week when I talked to Nets radio announcer Chris Carino. Still, you know, Claxton has been kind of getting his lunch money stolen in the first two games. I get that Alex mentioned that his defensive rating hasn't been affected but drilling down, the Nets are most often getting clobbered on the boards when Claxton is on the court. Boston is rebounding 40% of their misses with Claxton manning the middle and 30% when he isn't. And he's 3 for 8 from the floor, all from within 5 feet. Like I tweeted last night, I think it's a good thing that Claxton is getting this kind of education out of the way early because I still think there will be games down the line where his versatility and athleticism makes more of a positive impact. So, speaking of making a positive impact, I think it's only fair of me to give the head coach a little credit here. Say what you will about Steve Nash. I don't think anyone appreciated it when he took out Harris after seven minutes when he was scorching the Celtics to the tune of 16 points to that point. But in the big picture, this team has been prepared and managed properly. I thought he used timeouts at the appropriate places, like when the Nets started to revert to their poor offensive habits last night. See a couple bad possessions in a row? Nothing wrong with talking things over before it snowballs into something worse. One thing I don't believe Nash has had to do yet is initiate a coach's challenge. I was kind of curious to see how Nash viewed those, given that he unofficially only used them 14 times in the 72-game regular season. And he went 7-7 seven and seven on those. So would the heat of the playoffs make him more apt to use them? I thought it was worth a question before the series began. Hey, Steve. Uh, you always hear people say that in the playoffs, possessions are magnified. So I was curious if that makes you more apt to think differently about your coach's challenges 
you know, maybe use one earlier so as to not leave it, leave your best tool in the shed, so to speak? Mm. Uh, good question. I, I wouldn't be adverse to, to challenging uh, if we feel really strongly about it early. Um, but there's also something to be said for saving it um, if, if you're not completely certain. So, you know, it could go either way. Uh, we, we could debate this all day with our analytics team, but, uh, you know, we, we definitely aren't afraid of using them and we also aren't afraid of using them early. Having said that, you know, only if you're really certain because it could be more valuable at the end of the game. Again, that was Nets coach Steve Nash, who has his club right where he wants them. They got their feeling out process out of the way in game one where the relative newness of the big three playing together could iron out some kinks. Team is now playing the right way. The ball flowing beautifully on offense and the team actually playing D on a string. Like I said, I couldn't be happier. So here's to hoping that I'm still feeling that way after this weekend. And here's to you for sticking through another episode of the City Game Podcast. Again, a huge thank you to Alex Schiffer of The Athletic for a terrific spot. Hope you appreciate it as much as I did. Hopefully it made you want to subscribe to this podcast on Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you're downloading this episode. Also, please feel free to post some comments on Apple Podcasts if you get a chance. So I should be recording again sometime next week. Could be after a game five or maybe a preview of a second round series. Who knows? So until next time, I'm Steve Lichtenstein of WFAN.com saying thank you for listening to the City Game Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.